Thank you, Brother Bartlett, for the opportunity I've had for the last three Sundays. And I was just sitting there thinking, I was 24 years old when I first uh, preached at the camp meeting in uh, God's Acres. I was, uh, that's 60 years ago. I'm 84 now. So it's been a, it's been a long journey. I'm at the stage of life where there are days when life becomes a burden. You know, there you get there. The Bible tells us that, that the evil days come. And I'm at that stage of life where various physical things make a difference. But I thank God for the opportunities I've had throughout the years and for the grace of God that has kept me and... Uh, uh, for all his goodness, and I'm thankful for uh, the congregation here for your uh, acceptance and appreciation of me, uh, Brother Bartlett, and as well as the congregation. I really appreciate that. <clears throat> Let us pray. Loving Father of heaven, we come into your presence with a thankful heart. We do thank you, dear Lord, from the depths of our heart for all that thou hast done for us. And I pray that thou will help us this day. And something that I say will be a blessing to someone that's here, someone that's listening. I ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. Before I get into our lesson, I've just barely touched the subject of holiness in these last two days. There's so many other facets of it. I just wanted to mention that uh, my son and, uh, has a website, and, uh, and I, I post things on there. But I preached a series about five or six uh, messages here recently within the past uh, six months or so. And uh, it, they're all on the subject of holiness. I covered so many different things. I have charts uh, and other things that I went by, but I'm just mentioning that to say that if you would like to study into this subject a little bit deeper, I encourage you to go there and listen to what I have to say, and, and, uh, and I trust it would be a blessing. Brother Troy, Romine has the website. It's called Brook Dash Sheriff. And Brooke, of course, B-R-O-K, and, and that was the Brooke, Sheriff was the Brooke that God sent Elijah to uh, for encouragement and for sustaining him during that time of drought. And, uh, but uh, if you're interested, I just wanted to mention that you see Brother Troy, and he'll give you that website. All right. <clears throat> My subject this morning is abusing the grace of God. Abusing the grace of God. First thing I want to say is the grace of God is a wonderful thing. <laughs> We've sung about it, rejoiced in it. I've, I've said amen, hallelujah this morning. And for the grace of God that saves us. But that grace can be abused. 
That grace, my friend, is open to abuse, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, abusing the grace of God. I chose for my text uh, the book of Jude, and of course it's only one chapter, uh, Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude is here uh, introducing himself as a brother of James, and James, of course, was a half-brother of Jesus, and Jude was of the family of Jesus. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and presented in Christ Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Judas telling them that he felt compelled. He felt that it was, a necessar it was necessary for him to write to the church and warn them of certain men that have crept in. And that, that, that word means secretly. It doesn't mean they, they were not known. What it means is that their purpose was not fully understood. And he says that it was needful for me or necessary that I write unto you. Now, Jude felt it was necessary to urge the church to contend for the ancient full, true faith. That's what he's saying, the faith once delivered to the saints. And he tells the reason why. And he says that these men that have crept in unawares have turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now, I feel compelled also this morning to warn God's people, my friend, in a similar way that Jude felt when he wrote this epistle. Jude felt it was necessary to urge the church to return to the ancient teachings of the faith. And Jude, my friend, said that the reason for that was because false teachers had slipped in among God's people. The church seemed unaware of the danger that these teachers posed. And Jude charged those teachers, my friend, with turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now the word lasciviousness, that's a word we don't use in our common language, uh, unless you're teaching a Bible lesson that has it in it, you probably never use it. But it refers to wicked, sinful behavior. And usually in its context in the New Testament, it refers to sexual immorality, but not always. It can refer, my friend, to any wicked, sinful behavior. And often the reason that the church is unaware 
of the danger that these kinds of teachers pose is because of how they present themselves. False teachers don't come and say, I'm a false teacher, and what I'm going to, what I'm going to teach you is a lie. They, they, they present themselves as men of God. They present themselves as people, my friend, who are followers of Jesus Christ. And their teachings mainly, now this is not always true, but mainly their teachings is presented as being something liberating. You can find that in one place in the New Testament talks about false teachers promising liberty, but, but we're actually servants of sin and corruption. But their message, my friend, is presented as being liberating. And that's always something that we like to hear and something that is inviting to all of us. And most of the time, at least in our modern time, they are providing freedom from the bondage of legalism. Uh, they, the teaching, my friend, is presented as a liberating thing. It'll give you freedom. Not, you'll not be under the bondage of legalism. You won't have all of those restrictions and, uh, and uh, do's and don'ts and so on. I'm sure you've heard that kind of preaching if you've heard, uh, listened to anything today. But in reality, their teachings was a moral rebellion against the law of God. It's one thing to talk about how Christ liberates us, but it's another thing, my friend, to twist that to where it is saying that we're liberated from the law of God. <laughs> Jesus said not one dot over an I or a cross over a T, not one dot or tittle will be removed until all is fulfilled. Paul said, the law is good, right? And he said, it is good if a man use it lawfully. You know, legalism is a thing that so many people are preaching. You know, today we live in a time when it's out of balance. The grace of God is so exalted to the place, my friend, that obedience to God's law is almost forgotten. But there's a balance between them. There's a balance. The law is good and holy and beneficial for God's people. And I say again, you'll never find in the New Testament where insisting on obeying God's law is ever condemned. Legalism, I'll tell you what real legalism is, and I'm against it. Legalism is when a person uses their own obedience to God's law as the grounds and the foundation for their justification before God. We've been sung here this morning, our justification, our forgiveness is not based on our obedience. It's based on the death of Jesus Christ. Now, we use the metaphor blood, but it's not just speaking of blood. You know, it's not just speaking of the blood that ran in Jesus' veins. It's talking about his death. 
is talking about Christ dying. And it's not only talking about him dying, but it's talking about how he died. He had his life taken from him. He was a young man in his early 30s, and his life was... Now, if he had died of cancer, if he had died, my friend, of, of a virus such as COVID is, if he had died of old age, it had been a different story. It was more than death. It was how he died. He was crucified. An innocent man put to death for the guilty. And it wasn't just his blood. If it was just his blood, you know, I've heard, I've heard preachers say that one drop of that precious blood is enough to save the whole world. If that were true, all Jesus would have had to done is cut his wrist here, let a cup full of blood run out, heal it back up, and it had been enough to save the whole world. It isn't the liquid that flowed in his veins. If you study it in the Bible, the idea of shedding blood means killing somebody. And when it talks about Jesus shed his blood, it, it means more than he just bled. He died. He was put to death. And my friend, it is his death that atones for our sins. He died a death so that you and I do not have to die eternally. We do not have, even though we deserve eternal death, we deserve, my friend, of being lost forever and separated from God forever. But Christ died, and his death became sufficient for God to forgive us of our just penalty and my friend, to accept us as if we had never sinned. That's wonderful. That's the grace of God. It's a beautiful thing. But it can be, my friend, it can be, it can be abused. In this text here in Jude, holiness is the issue, not unbelief in God. When he said that he wanted to warn the church... He is not warning them about unbelievers. That's not, that's not his point. Issue was. Holiness, I should say, was the issue. And these people, my friend, were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. What an abuse of the grace of God. You know, if you twist and pervert the grace of God until it becomes so distorted that it has the opposite effect on God's people than it should have, then you're abusing the grace of God. They were taking the grace of God and presenting it in a way that it was opening up a life to sin. And the grace of God is to save us from sin. It, the grace of God tends, my friend, to holiness. Not to, not to freedom from God's law, freedom from morality, freedom, my friend, uh, from obeying God, 
That's not what the grace of God is for. The grace of God tends towards holiness and righteousness. In Titus, the second chapter, verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, this is what the grace of God teaches, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God, my friend, in pardoning sin is considered to be offered unconditionally. I'm sure you've heard that preached. I'm sure you have, that the grace of God is offered unconditionally. But if you study the Bible, you'll find that forgiveness of sin is always conditioned on repentance. Jesus and John, when they started their ministry, uh, the New Testament tells us that they preached the same thing, to repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance, my friend, I know you'll be quiet because some of these things are going to sound strange, but I challenge you to read the Word of God. Forgiveness of sin is always conditioned on repentance. Why forgive somebody of sin if they don't turn from it? If you forgive them today, you'll have to do it tomorrow. Repentance, my friend, means that a person is going in one direction and he turns and he goes in the other direction. Repentance, my friend, means that we turn from serving ourselves unto serving the living God. The gospel commands all men to repent. In Acts the 17th chapter in the 30th verse, I'm reading this out of a Another translation, in the past God overlooked such ignorance. And what he's talking about here, the ignorance that he's referring to here is idol worship. In time past, that means before the gospel dispensation and before the gospel was opened up to the whole world, God mainly dealt, that, though it's not true in the absolute sense, but God mainly dwelt with the, descent, the physical descendants of Abraham. But he did deal with other people beyond that race. But now, said in the past, God overlooked. And the, new, new, uh, the King James says God winked at it. It means he closed his eyes to it. He overlooked it. Idol worship. But now... He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. At the very heart of the gospel, my friend, is the condition of repentance. To offer people forgiveness without the condition of repentance, my friend, is to open up the floodgate to iniquity. 
If we, my friend, do not teach people that they must turn from sin, they must quit sin, and we offer them forgiveness unconditionally, we're doing harm to them and to the message, my friend, of God. Repentance means to turn from sin, to quit sinning, and God's mercy and grace, my friend, is conditioned upon repentance. You can read it in all uh, oh, so many places, but the Bible teaches us that if he, if he declares a judgment against somebody and they repent, and there's story after story that, that God uh, told people that they were going to be punished for their sins, but they turned in repentance and God forgave them because forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance and faith. I mean, it takes them both. Right now, because of the subject I'm dealing with, I'm emphasizing repentance. But faith is required as well. You've got to believe. You've got to believe what God said about Jesus. You've got to believe, my friend, the, the good news that God will forgive you of all your sins. Those who do not repent, that is, turn from sin, but continue in sin, will never enter God's kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the righteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? Are you not aware of that fact? That the unrighteous shall not inherit God's kingdom. And here it's talking about what we call the eternal kingdom of God. We would say heaven. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. And what he meant was, be not deceived about this. Unrighteous people are not going to heaven. People who live in known willful sin continually, habitually, are not going to go to heaven. No matter what people have said. And then he said, be not deceived. And he meant, don't be deceived about this. Don't be deceived about this, friend. Unrighteous people not going to heaven. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, infeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. He gave us a list here, and I'm, uh, it's not my purpose to explain what this is, but this is a list of sins. And then he says this, and such were some of you. He's telling my friend, the Corinthian church, that some of them were characterized by these sins. Huh. They, were, they were a sinful people. They were characterized. He said, and such were some of you. But you're washed. You've been washed. You're not that anymore. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. The word sanctified means to make holy. 
but you're justified. That means to be put in right standing with God. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, he says here, such were some of you. Before the Corinthian believers were converted, my friend, they were characterized by these various sins. That doesn't mean all of them had all of them, but some of them had some of them. I would say, and I don't know anything about people in here, uh, your past life and how how you lived in sin, but I can tell sometimes from your testimony you wasn't a very nice person. I've heard you testify that. And probably there's somebody in here, my friend, that is characterized by or has been characterized by some of those very sins that I read about. Such were some of you. But you were washed. And what he means here is washed from their sins through the sanctification by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's more to salvation than justification. Justification is that the death of Jesus Christ is accepted, my friend, as an atoning for our deserved punishment of damnation. And God forgives us, and my friend removes that punishment. That means we're brought into right standing with God. The guilty becomes not guilty. The sinner begins to be treated as if he never committed sin. That's justification. But sanctification, my friend, is the cleansing of our life. Sin not only needs to be forgiven, it needs to be cleansed. You don't only need to be forgiven of your sins, you need to be washed from them. You need to be sanctified. Now, we, we use the word holy, and uh, the word holy has no verb. You know, it doesn't have a verb. Uh, it has a noun, it has an adjective, but no verb. We don't say God is holy in a man. I mean, there's, we don't, that's not in our language. That's not a word unless you want to create a new one. But we don't say God is holy in. What we say is God is sanctified. God is sanctifying. That simply means making holy. Holiness and sanctification are identical. Identical. In fact, the word in the New Testament that's, that's translated uh, sanctification, holiness, it appears ten times in the New Testament. Five times the King James Translators translated it holiness. And the other five times, they translated it sanctification. I only bring that up, my friend, to point out to you that in their minds, holiness and sanctification was the same thing. But God sanctifies us, and that's a lesson in and of itself, but he sanctifies us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said all this. Now, listen to me. 
You can come to God as you are. You can come to God as you are. Somebody said, Brother Yoder, uh, some of these sins you, you read here are in my life. I'm characterized by that. I'm guilty of that. Well, you can come as you are, my friend, and that means there's no prior condition. You don't have to quit. If you're an extortioner, an extortioner is somebody that charges more for something than what it's worth. And there's a lot of extortioning going on in this time of inflation, believe me. But you don't have to quit it to come. But you cannot stay if you don't quit it. You cannot stay with God if you remain in sin. You must repent. You must turn from sin. You must confess. Amen? Recently, uh, I've, I've listened to all the, the morning services of ever, well, ever since and even before the revival, but I listened to all the revival messages uh, a month or so ago, and then Brother Bartlett's, and one message he's preaching. Brother Bartlett, my friend, welcomed all kinds of sinners. He went down through, and I'll not repeat, but he was welcoming all kinds of sinners. And he's standing here saying, we welcome you if you're, you know, homosexual or a thief. Or, I mean, he went down through a whole list of things. And you're welcome. And I, I say the same thing. You can come as you are, but you can't stay if you remain as you are. Grace to offer grace without repentance is a license to sin. I remember reading here, uh, actually read, this is something somebody actually said. Maybe you can't think somebody be this dumb, but this is something somebody actually said. Salvation is so wonderful. I love to sin, and God loves to forgive. That's the kind of abuse I'm talking about. It's taking the grace of God and twisting it and distorting it till it actually becomes a license to sin. You go ahead and sin because God is so willing to forgive. I don't know whether you know this, but grace can be so easily misunderstood and abused. Full and free pardon of all sins can seem to make holiness unnecessary. Did you hear me? Full and free pardon from all sins, my friend, can seem to make holiness unnecessary. Pardon is in contrast with justice, you know, mercy and judgment. You're forgiven. Instead of receiving your just and deserved punishment. Every one of us justly 
deserve to go to hell forever. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The whole world becomes guilty before God. We didn't sin by accident. We didn't sin because we had to can't help it. We sinned because we chose to do so. We sinned, my friend, to please ourselves. We sought pleasure or profit or position or something. And we sinned willfully. We knew what we were doing when we'd done it. And to offer my friend full and free pardon can have consequences. You know, there's some places in our country now that they require no bail. In fact, one of, one of the things on the ballots in the state of Ohio was that the judge was to, was to review the case and set bail according to the seriousness of the crime and et cetera, other considerations. But we have some places in this country that have no bail anymore. And I have read of stories of people who were brought in, arrested, stood before a judge, and they were not they weren't put in jail. They had they didn't have any bail. They were turned loose, and within 24 hours, they were committing the same crime. I'm, I'm mentioning that because full and free pardon can leave the wrong impression in people's minds. It can leave the impression that the law doesn't matter and that obedience is not necessary anymore. As soon as people realize that God is willing to forgive them of all their sins and that they do not have to pay the penalty for their sins, they are faced with a temptation to presume upon the grace and the mercy of God. That's the danger. That's the danger. All of us are faced with that danger and temptation, by the way. The result is the kind of thinking that nobody needs to be careful about sinning. Holiness is not that important. Holiness is unnecessary. You don't have to worry about, my friend, or be concerned about being careful about sinning. Why? Because God's mercy is always there for any and every sin. That is a perversion of the grace of God. That is taking the grace of God. And instead of it leading us to holiness and righteousness, it leads us, my friend, to sin. Offering a full and free pardon is a very delicate matter. I mean, suppose in our, our judicial system that that was practiced. <laughs> just all you had to do uh, to get a full and free pardon is just say, I'm sorry, I don't, I, don't, I don't intend to do it again, and they just turn you free. Just... What would be the consequences of that? Well, it would open up a floodgate to crime. 
which being soft, my friend, on crime is, we see it, we're witnessing it in our nation, in, particularly in some places more than in others. But not only offering full and free pardon is a delicate matter, it's a dangerous thing. To pardon means to set aside a deserved penalty. And that's what God does when he forgives us. He sets aside a deserved penalty. And in setting aside the penalty of the law, it has a tendency of setting aside the law and causing people so that they, well, it has a tendency. I'd say it doesn't always have this result, but it has a tendency, my friend, to lead to a disregard of the law. The danger in involved in offering full and free pardon is that it may leave the impression that obeying God's law is not important. <laughs> you cannot read the Bible, Old and New Testament, and ever come up with that idea. That obedience is not important to God. That living a holy life is unnecessary. You can't, you can't come up with that answer unless you twist and distort the Word of God. But once this impression that obeying God's law is not important, once that impression is created, it can lead to a total disregard of God's law and righteousness. And people will no longer respect or obey God's law because they have no fear of being punished because forgiveness is always there. That's a terrible abuse of the grace of God. That's a terrible abuse of the grace of God. The grace of God in forgiving us ought to lead us to loving, to obeying, to, to honor him. There's times, and even within the last week, but there have been various times in my life, in my prayers, I've said, God, I feel so sorry for you. After all your goodness and all your blessings, and people live the way they live, they disregard you. Our nation is blessed above any people, historically or presently. We've grown so used to it, having the wealth that we have, the blessings we have. And it's come through the goodness of God. And I feel sorry for the way that people treat God. I don't know about you, but I weep over it. The disregard there is. Has obeying the law of God become obsolete because of the grace of God? Think about that. Has obeying the law of God become obsolete? Because of the grace of God. 
In Romans, the sixth chapter, the first seventh verse says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Baptism is, is a symbol of our death to sin and our death to the world. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, and that the body of sins might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. For Paul, for the Apostle Paul to remain in sin in order to receive accumulating grace. He, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, keep on sinning, and that way we, 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 we keep on receiving an accumulation of the grace of God. He asked that question, and he answered it. God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. It's not possible because we are dead to sin. That's why I said last week that anyone who truly loves God will not live habitually in known willful sin. I stand on that because God's word teaches it, believe me. Verses 6 and 7 explains what he meant by being dead to sin. That henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Being dead to sin means being freed from sin. Paul's question that he asked here in, in Romans 6, 1, probably arose because of what he had written previously in Romans 5.20. The latter part of that verse said, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In that verse, Paul is rejoicing of the triumph of God's grace, my friend, over all our sins. You know, Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. That means number one. He referred to himself as the number one sinner, chief of sinners. And he said that in me, that the pattern of the gospel would be an example to others. A man as wicked as him that put to death Christians could be forgiven. And he said God showed a pattern of forgiveness in him. He knew what it was to be forgiven of great sin. And he made the statement that where sin abounded, and what he's talking about there is people who were great sinners 
deep sinners. Their life was full of sin. But he said, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And I say again, he was rejoicing in the triumph of God's grace over our sins. God's grace covers all sin. Every sin. But don't misunderstand that. Don't twist that. These people had so twisted it, my friend, that they believed that God would continue to bestow grace if they continued in sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if God loves to forgive, I'm just going to continue in sin and let God enjoy bestowing grace on me. He said, God forbid, that's inconceivable. That cannot be the message of the gospel. It's a distortion. It's twisting the grace of God and making it the very reason why we continue in sin instead of the reason why we quit sin. You know why I quit sin? Because God loved me enough to forgive me of everything that I ever done that was wrong. It caused me to love him and still does. <laughs> love him with all my heart. Amen? Well, that's what grace is supposed to do. But when you abuse grace and twist it, see, their reasoning was something like this. God is so willing to forgive us of all of our sins that if we continue in sin, God would enjoy bestowing more grace. God forbid. God forbid. That's the strongest negative that you can find in the Bible. Is it true, though, what people believe? That the more we sin, the more God enjoys exercising grace? Absolutely not. My friend, I say again, repeat. For the Apostle Paul, that was something that was inconceivable. How can that possibly be? Because we died to sin. How can that possibly be? Actually, this kind of teaching, my friend, is a despicable abuse of God's grace. And it's this kind of abuse of God's grace that is undercutting morality and holiness in our churches today. You and me, now listen to me, you and me, my friend, are not immune from this temptation to abuse grace. We can become complacent about living a holy life, become complacent about sin because we believe that God is willing to forgive us. We face that temptation. We face that temptation. 
God's goodness can, I put it this way, God's goodness is in danger of being abused in in this way. Romans, the second chapter in the fourth verse said, Or despise thou the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. They were, they were despising the goodness of God, and instead of it, God's goodness leading them to repentance, they continued in sin because they were trusting in the forbearance and long-suffering of God. Paul writes about these people that showed contempt for God's goodness. How did they show contempt? By continuing in sin, and they failed to realize that God's goodness, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, the goodness of God, is to lead us to repentance. But instead of leading them to repentance... They continued in sin. They despised the very things about God that ought to bring them to repentance and bring them to God. God's goodness, that word is God's favor and blessings in general, many kinds. Forbearance means to postpone or delay a deserved wrath or punishment. And long-suffering means to exercise forbearance for a long time. And that simply means that God bears with people's sins and sometimes for a long time. God is forbearing. He puts up with things. I'll be honest with you. I I sometimes, I can't imagine God putting up with all the wickedness that's going on. I mean, but he's, he's forbearing. He does that. He's long-suffering. He does it for a long time. But these people were abusing God's forbearance and God's offer of mercy and pardon by making it the very reason that they continued in sin. They disobeyed God and refused to repent for the very reasons that they ought to obey God and repent. God's long-suffering can be regarded as a license to sin if we're not careful. This, again, is perverting the goodness of God and the grace of God. Consider with me. Do you expect God to put up with your sinning? He's going to put up with you. Now, if you really believe he, he wasn't going to put up, let's just say for a minute, that you knew that this was the last day that God was ever going to put up with your sinning, what would you do? I know what you'd do. You'd probably come in repentance. But because you believe that and expect God to put up with you, it shows that you regard God's forbearance and his long-suffering as a license for you to continue in sin. You continue in sin on the assumption that God will put up with your sinning as long as you live and that mercy will always be there just for the asking. What a perversion. (laughs) 
This is a disgusting abuse of the mercy and the grace of God. The, God's offer of mercy ought to cause us to repent immediately. <laughs> but instead, it encourages some people to continue in sin. You know what? The number one reason that when people are convicted in, ch in church services, during times of revival, people sometimes come under conviction, especially those that are unbelievers. And the number one reason why that they don't come that night is because they believe there's going to be another night. The reason why they do not repent immediately is because they assume on God's grace that there's going to be other times, more time. God's long-suffering, instead of leading you to repentance, is encouraging you to remain in your sin. That's an abuse of God's mercy and grace. Such a person, a person that acts and believes like that, cares nothing about God's law, nothing about honoring God in obedience. The only thing they care about is their own safety. They don't want to go to hell. They care very little about whether God is honored or dishonored in their life. They just care about not being lost. In closing, I ask you, test yourself by these questions. If you knew, as I've already said, if you knew that if you continued to sin to the end of today, that God would never forgive you, what would you do? If you knew that at the end of this day, that God's offer of mercy would be off the table, what would you do? Probably, you'd come immediately to the altar and repent. If that is true about you, do you not see how you are regarding God's long-suffering and mercy? How do you regard it? You're abusing it, my friend, God's offer of mercy and forgiveness. You're abusing it and twisting it that it becomes the very reason why you continue in sin. You continue in sin because you assume there will always be forgiveness. This is how you show contempt to God's forbearance. And this is how you abuse the grace of God. I don't know whether you understood me. I tried to make it as plain as I could. I call them grace abusers. Grace abusers. It's a wonderful thing that God's offered grace. If it had not been for that, we'd all go to hell. 
Ain't one of us, not one of you, good enough to go to heaven without being forgiven by God. And his offer of mercy and grace, instead of it leading us to love him, to obey him, and leading us to a life of holiness, becomes the reason why we go on in sin. Or as a professing Christian, the reason why we're not careful about how we live, we don't care about God's honor. We care about our not losing our soul. We're not careful of how we live. We're complacent about obeying God. What an abuse of God's mercy. The reason why you're complacent is because you feel that, well, if I sin, no big deal. I can just ask God to forgive me, and we'll go on. Instead of it leading you to a life of holiness, it is encouraging you, your belief, is encouraging you to continue in sin. Father, I ask that thou will talk to people here today. I've done my best in the short period of time that I had to make this as clear as I possibly could. But Father of heaven, we live in a generation of grace abusers. And Father of heaven, many professing Christians are abusing your grace. I hope there's none in this audience. But if there is, God, somehow, get to them. Somehow, break through their darkness and help them to see that living continually in sin is never what God intended for his people but to save them from the power of sin. If there's an unbeliever here, one that's never known you, has lived in sin, and still lives in sin, and they've been putting it off because they are trusting in your forbearance, they're assuming that you're going to put up with them, help them to see how that what they are doing and what they are thinking is disgusting to you, Lord. It's disgusting that they are treating your mercy and love in such a way. Talk to them. Bring them to a place of repentance. And let them know, Father, what it is to really be forgiven of all their sins. Bless, I pray, during these next few minutes as Brother Sherm leads us in a verse of song, Lord. It's only going to be just a short time, but talk to people in that short time and bring them to salvation. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Would you stand, please?